What happens when you take this test, you send in your blood sample, and then they give you this readout of all these foods and like, oh, zucchini and apples and bread, whatever else. Like, oh, wow, I, I eat these things all the time. Oh my gosh, no wonder I feel so bad because I'm sensitive to these foods. No, you got that readout because you eat them all the time. You may coincidentally remove or reduce foods that have caused some GI distress because they happen to be high in fermentable carbohydrates. Or maybe you have lactose intolerance and milk came up and so you reduce that. So you may see an improvement in your GI distress, but it's at the expense of your dietary pattern. And I have had one person who came to me that was eating, I think like nine foods and had been that way for months, only nine foods. Can you imagine trying to do breakfast, oh lunch, and dinner? Gosh. I mean, yeah. That would go insane. Yeah. So like everything else that they ate had came up on their test. So those are incredibly harmful. And, and like I said, it's not that we don't know whether they're harmful or not. We know that they are. We know that they are not measuring what they say they're measuring. there. Welcome to Tater Talks, Two Bitches Talk Fitness. I'm Brooke. And hello, I'm Iris. On this show, we challenge the common understanding of what it means and what it takes to be fit and healthy. We explore all things fitness, nutrition, mindset, and mental health without the fluff and BS. So grab a coffee, get ready to laugh, cry, even learn a thing or two. Let's get into it. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. We have Dr. Gabrielle Fundero, vitamin PhD on Instagram with us today to talk about all things gut health, which I'm very excited about. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Why don't we start with tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Absolutely. And this will be a, a, a first plug for my new Instagram, which is going to be all gut health focused because what I do is really like two separate categories of things, one being gut health science communication and the other being lifestyle coaching. But I haven't marketed the lifestyle coaching or spoken about it as much in the last year because I've been so focused on gut health things in, in multiple realms. So my background is in exercise science and also in human metabolism and the gut microbiome. And so that's what I ended up getting my doctorate in. And that's how I found myself in the gut health space, in the fitness space, because when I decided that I was going to leave academia about five years ago, after four years of teaching in exercise science, Dr. Mike Isratel, who I worked with at Renaissance Periodization when I was a coach there. I'm obsessed with him. <laughs> yeah. He, he's like, why don't you start talking about gut health on podcasts? Don't you have like a PhD in that or something? And I was like, oh, kind of, I guess I can do that. <laughs> And that was in, I think, 2017. And from there, it really snowballed. And it went from like one podcast I was on with Steve Hall from Revive Stronger. And then I got invited on another one like a month later. And I was like, oh my goodness. And then within six months, it was like a podcast every week or more. I mean, it was it could have been a podcast every day because just coincidentally, the gut health space became so popular and people wanted to learn more about it. So the reason that I do science communication in that area isn't necessarily because I'm super passionate or driven by the topic itself. It was a topic that I was really curious about when I was in grad school. And I found that aspect, the link between the gut microbiome and human metabolism to be fascinating. But really the thing that keeps me going in this space is that I want to prevent harm 
and unnecessary suffering that comes from people being preyed upon and taken advantage of by unscrupulous influencers or by people that are just accidentally disseminating misinformation. And I want to do that in a way that is respectful and helpful and compassionate um, for the people who are really trying to figure out like what the heck is going wrong? Why don't they feel well in a way that accurately represents and translates the literature with all of the nuance and none of the persuasion. Like, I don't really care what diet people want to follow, like what dietary pattern. I'm not going to be like, you have to be vegan or whatever. I'm just going to communicate the science and say, you can make an informed decision now. And that's really the approach that I take with lifestyle coaching as well, is that it's about helping people make informed decisions based on their own self-trust and self-awareness that they sometimes have to build or often have to build over time. It comes from the same space of wanting to empower people and help them feel that they have agency. But it just so happens that gut health is a specific context in which I can do that. Oh, so my new Instagram handle, I forgot. It's it's no (laughs) underscore BS underscore gut health. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah, man, there is so much about (laughs) gut health out there. There is so much misinformation and there is so much confusion. So first of all, what is a healthy gut? What is an unhealthy gut? Can we even say what that is? Because gut health science is still very new right? In the world of science. Yes. And I would even say gut health science is not actually a thing. It's, it's not a field of research. Mm. I mean, when we, when we give it that title, like there's no, you can't get a, a bachelor's in gut health or anything like that. Gut health is a really a, a definite, a definition free term that people can use to mean sort of whatever they want. And so that's why I came up with the operational definition. My working definition is the three D's of gut health. And from there, we can talk about what aspects of gut health are usefully measurable and what aspects are not, and how we might be able to approach defining what healthy, good gut health would be. But I want to preface that by saying we don't have a definition for a healthy gut microbiome. So that right there, that's one of the the three Ds of gut health that like I'm going to say right now, we can't give you an answer on that yet. The other two D's of gut health are digestion and disease. And then the third one that I just mentioned, I call that diversity. So the first two D's of gut health address more the, the human side of the gut. We, when we talk about gut health, we have the human side, the gastrointestinal tract, its tissues, its function. And then we have the microbial side, the gut microbiome. So we, we do have clear metrices for determining whether there is or is not a disease of the gut. So we can look at digestion as being objectively measurable in terms of quality. So we can say like stool quality, you can rate that from a one to a seven to talk about like how firm the stool is. You can use stool quality and the frequency of bowel movements and other symptoms like straining and abdominal pain to determine whether there might be the presence of a disease. So we can say, okay, yeah, we could say like digestion is objectively measurable and we can do that in a quantitative way or in a qualitative way. Like I have abdominal pain. I don't have comfortable bowel movements. Those things are things that we can measure and improve on over time. Because we know like what is good is a comfortable bowel movement several times a week. And then kind of what is bad is something other than that. 
And likewise with the disease, we have specific diagnostic criteria that we can use to diagnose or rule out the presence of either a functional disease that just affects the, the function of the GI tract or an organic disease that affects the tissues and then would also affect the function. So a functional disease example would be, or a disorder would be irritable bowel syndrome. Tissues look normal, but they are misbehaving. And then if we look at inflammatory bowel disease, we have actual ulcerations of the GI tract. And so both the appearance or the tissues and the function are affected. Those are the, the D's of gut health that I encourage coaches, if they want to be working with their clients on gut health, those are the things that we can focus on. Those are the useful metrics. The third D of gut health, diversity, is the one that gets too much press for what we know about it so far. So diversity is talking about the microbial aspect of gut health. That's the uh, number of different species or the number of different types of microbes in the gut. And then also the relative proportions. So we call that the richness is the number and then the evenness is the proportion. And we talk a lot about bacteria and they are the predominant microbe in your gut, but we also have archaea, we have fungi, and we also have viruses that can affect either human or uh, bacterial cells. And we have tens of trillions of microbes in the gut. I mean, we have about like two kilograms worth of biomass in the gut. It's, it's an incredible number of cells that's at about, a, a, people used to say we were more microbe than human cell. That's not quite true. If you include red blood, if you include blood cells, then we're about a one-to-one ratio of the number of microbial cells to the number of human cells in the body. So we can measure diversity in multiple ways, actually. So when a, an article says there was an increase in diversity, that doesn't mean just one thing. It could be the richness. It could be the evenness. It could be the richness and the evenness. And then we have alpha diversity, which is looking at one population, beta diversity that looks at two different populations and compares them. So even the term diversity is one that encompasses other things. And we don't yet have uh, the ability to say this amount of diversity is the right amount or this specific microbe should be this, should have this number or this relative proportion because each person has a unique microbiome, like as unique as a fingerprint. And assuming that all three of us are healthy here, and we were to send our, our stool samples into a lab and get a readout, just like you can do with a direct-to-consumer stool analysis test, they would probably all be very different. I mean, you're, we're on two, two sides of the country. I'm actually in another country right now. I'm in Colombia. So we get our readouts and they're different. How do we figure out which is the healthy one? So they're, they're likely, they're, they're healthy in their own unique way. And so when we see things like, oh, you have bad gut health, you need to fix your gut health, or even these stool analysis tests, trying to sell the idea that that's something that we can assess and fix, it's really just not substantiated by any evidence. So I put that 3D in there, that third D in there to understand that that's what people are usually including when they talk about gut health. And there's certainly a link between the microbiome and many aspects of health and disease, but it's not something that we can measurably assess in a way that makes it actionable. That's so interesting. One thing I see a lot is claims all over the place. This will heal your gut or this will ruin your gut. Sugar, aspartame, gluten, protein, fiber, like all like name it. It's going to destroy you <laughs> from the inside out. Yeah. Is there anything that we can definitively say across the board 
yeah, this is probably not great besides like eating Tide Pods. (laughs) Oh, man, I was going to say bleach, but (laughs) (laughs) don't drink bleach. It's bad for your gut. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And that term, too, I forgot to mention that the whole like the heal your gut thing. And I have seen researchers say this and to each their own. Like, I'm sure that they create their own context for what they mean by that. But when we say heal the gut, I, it's like, what part are we talking about? The tissues, the function of the GI tract? Are you talking about something with the microbiome? What was wrong with it in the first place? Yeah. How are we going to know that we've healed it? But the, those ambiguous terms sell really well because people think that, oh, if I am having uncomfortable digestion, then there's something wrong and then healing it will fix that. But there are, and even to say like across the board, something that would be really bad. We have to like determine, okay, what's bad? Is bad causing severe GI distress? Then in most people, high amounts of sugar alcohols, like what we get in some like dietary products and really high amounts, of like a concentrated amounts of inulin, which is a FODMAP that we see in a lot of high fiber foods. It's a functional fiber. High amounts of those will in most people have a laxative effect and create a lot of gas. And I would say in most cases, people don't enjoy that. We could say that's like, that's an unpleasant thing, but it doesn't damage the GI tract. And it's actually a source of uh, many sugar alcohols and and FODMAPs are substrates for the gut microbiome. They're, some are considered prebiotic. So we would say microbes are loving that. That's great for them, but for the human, not so great. Um, likewise, when we look at something like a uh, carnivore diet, so it's a meat only diet completely removes all, all plant products. We're removing substrate for most of the microbes. So we'll see uh, a decline in the population in the diversity. We can say that, especially in the microbes that rely heavily on um, our dietary carbohydrates for their energy source, the indigestible ones, I should mention. And we see an uptick in the microbes that can either ferment uh, peptides or proteins, and that's linked to the production of carcinogenic compounds when produced, and it's problematic if it's produced in large amounts, and also microbes that will break down the protective mucus layer of your intestine. That we would say is risky. It's not a great thing. We would say that that would be pretty bad, but the human host often feels much better because they're not having uncomfortable um, gas and bloating. And so they see a a reduction in those sort of side effects of having plants in their diet. So even something like that, when we're talking about gut health is like, well, we have to be clear on what is the intended outcome. I would say that when we're looking at long-term effects, because like long-term dietary patterns have a strong influence on both your risk of developing a disease later in life, and also kind of the general composition of your microbiome, it's probably best to be eating a diet that is similar to the Mediterranean style diet that includes fruits and vegetables and whole grains and whatnot. And when we look at the long-term effects of a carnivore style diet, um, we don't have a lot of long-term studies on the gut specifically, but we do see that there are correlations between things like processed and red meat intake and colorectal cancer risk. And there are also some links between certain microbes that we see thriving in that dietary pattern that could indicate maybe that sets us up for an increased risk of disease later in life. So that's my very general, almost non-answer, but like probably across the board, it's not a great idea to be eating a westernized style dietary pattern all the time or a complete meat dietary pattern 
either. And even just looking at like blood work when people are doing that usually is indicating that there's a problem at hand. But things like artificial sweeteners, most in the food additives and whatnot, in, in most cases, we are not ingesting those in quantities that would be problematic based on what we see in human trials. But, you know, at the extremes, because I just kind of mentioned the extremes there, at the extremes, certainly everything has the capacity, the, the ability to influence the gut microbiome and aspects of health. But when we're trying to look at like, what would the effect be on the microbiome? And then what does that lead to? We can't answer that as clearly as we can, like looking at the risk of diseases and disorders of the GI tract as a result of behaviors and dietary habits. Avoid extremes. Mm -hmm. Imagine. <laughs> right? <laughs> In any case, yeah. So what about fiber? How important is fiber for gut health? So fiber is something that we can actually talk about all three Ds with fiber. So that's exciting. Love it. Um, yeah. So we, I'll start with digestion. We can classify fiber into two main categories. We have soluble fiber. That's the type that soaks up water. It creates sort of a, a, a gel. It's a viscous when we add water to it. So something like oatmeal would be an example of that. And then we have insoluble fiber. And insoluble fiber doesn't, it's not water soluble. So you can put it in water and nothing will happen. It's, it's like fruit and vegetable peels. And when we ingest fiber, the insoluble fiber helps to create bulk in the stool and may also create some friction against the lining of the GI tract that increases mucus production and helps to stimulate transit. And then the soluble fiber helps to soak up water, and that can also help to ease transit, and it can slow transit a little bit. So if you're having really loose bowel movements, you can increase your soluble fiber intake and help to normalize your stool. Then there are some supplementary fibers like methylcellulose that is an insoluble fiber, but it's modified in such a way that it doesn't create severe side effects, like a lot of gas and bloating, and it can normalize stool. So it's almost like the Goldilocks of fibers, like whether you're a little bit constipated or having some loose bowel movements that can, that can address both issues. So the, with your individually tolerated blend of soluble and insoluble fibers, you can support comfortable bowel movements, like anywhere from three times a day to three times a week is generally what's considered to be normal. And there's also a relationship between fiber intake and blood cholesterol levels. There's very limited evidence that it might aid with, um, in appetite regulation, but it could be that it just so happens that a lot of high volume foods tend to also be high in fiber. And so they take up a lot of space in the gut. So that's, that's kind of the side of that's the digestion side of things. It helps to support comfortable bowel movements and regular bowel movements to eliminate toxins and things like that. And I don't mean like weird toxins. I mean like actual you know, products that need to be eliminated. Yeah. <laughs> and then we have the disease aspect. So there is also a link between, like I mentioned, the Mediterranean style dietary pattern, which is high in fiber and a reduced risk of colorectal cancer. A really a significantly reduced risk when we compare it to a westernized style diet, it's about 20% reduction in, in risk. So that's something that's, that's significant and colorectal cancer is fairly prevalent. And then there's also, if we want to look at sort of disease management, although I'm not going to get too much into medical nutrition therapy, but there can be a modification of fiber intake that can help someone to potentially ease some of their symptoms. 
So for example, if a person has some constipation, then certain fiber types could help to ease that specific symptom. And then when we look at diversity of the gut microbiome, this is where we see the most significant and actually measurable impact on the diversity of the gut microbiome. So that's the richness and the evenness of species. And mostly what we see is that most uh, microbes in the gut reside in the large intestine and they are what we call obligate anaerobes. So they rely on carbohydrate or energy. They don't do well in, ox in environments that are high in oxygen. And so they don't, they're not very metabolically flexible. And so they are using the indigestible dietary carbohydrates, those fibers, mostly the soluble fibers, those soluble fibers, some of which are prebiotic, the prebiotics specifically feed microbes that we consider to be beneficial because they produce beneficial content. So when microbes ferment these dietary fibers, they can produce gas and they can also produce short chain fatty acids. And a couple of these short chain fatty acids, butyrate especially, has been linked to beneficial outcomes in metabolic health, like insulin sensitivity, appetite regulation. And there are others like propionate that might play a role in exercise performance, although that's still really preliminary. But these microbes can take this indigestible fiber and produce compounds that are either beneficial for us or are nutrient sources for our intestinal cells, thereby supporting the function of the digestive tract. So that's when we can link it back to the disease aspect or the even the digestion aspect, because there is a link between the microbiome and although we don't know which direction it goes, um, but it looks like there is some link between the microbiome and stool quality as well. So uh, because the, as these microbes are doing this, they're helping to regulate things like pH in, in the gut. So overall, when we have sufficient dietary fiber intake, we're supporting a more robust, resilient gut microbiome that's able to provide these, these beneficial compounds for us and fend off pathogens and, and help to, within the community, kind of regulate individual populations. So the more neutral or beneficial microbes we have in the gut, the less likely it is that our pathogens that are normal parts of the community will actually be able to, to initiate a disease process. So they're there, but they're, they're behaving. Whereas when we have a fiber deficient diet, that's where we see, as I mentioned, the reduction in diversity. And sometimes in rodents, we've seen a thinning of that mucus layer. So we're actually reducing our immune defenses in that aspect. So fiber is very important. <laughs> very important. <laughs> Yeah, not to bring it back to carnivore, but that's something I see a lot from that crowd is that fiber's a myth. We don't yeah. need it. And <laughs> I'm not going to go off on a soapbox there, but <laughs> one of the most dangerous, ridiculous diets out there. But conversely, if I had to pick one, I would go with the Mediterranean diet just because <laughs> I love that style of food. And out of all of them out there, that's one of the least crazy in my opinion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it really, it, it performs really well on any type of assessment, like for dietary quality. I mean, it's fairly easy to follow. You can adapt it. I mean, the there's not one specific Mediterranean diet. That's why I say like style. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically a foundation of uh, fruits and vegetables. And then we've got whole grains, we've got legumes, we still have dietary protein from animal sources, if desired, fish, some poultry, some dairy, and dairy, fermented dairy is actually the only probiotic food at the moment. 
So there are a number of different foods within that dietary pattern that are really supportive of gut, gut health. We want to say that and, and overall health. So when people ask, that's the one that I recommend either that or the dash diet, the dash diet's a little bit more general, but again, I mean, they're both just prudent, reasonable dietary patterns, which maybe makes them like less, less sexy and acceptable. <laughs> yeah. Extremes. Everybody loves them. <laughs> What's the deal with these poppy drinks, these probiotic gummies, the capsules, different types of drinks like apple cider vinegar juices and the little probiotic gummies? Because as I almost feel like with your description, prebiotic fiber might be more beneficial than probiotics. So can you touch on that a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a great thing to point out, the difference between prebiotics and probiotics. A prebiotic is the substrate is the energy source. It's essentially like fish food into the fish tank. A prebiotic is something that feeds gut microbes. Probiotics have a specific definition, which I'm going to bring up because it clarifies a lot of like the probiotic nonsense. Probiotics are live microorganisms that when ingested in adequate amounts, confer some benefit to the host. So right, that's the definition right now. It could change, but live microorganisms, when ingested in adequate amounts, confer some benefit to the host. So we have to have that live adequate amounts and they have documented benefits. Like there's been at least one publication that this specific thing has done and this other specific thing. And the reason that I point that out is that people use the term probiotic incorrectly. A lot of times they they apply it to all sorts of products and foods and whatnot that actually wouldn't meet that definition. That's the, the ISAP definition. And so we see that in things like with those sodas, the other fermented beverages like kombucha, they are often marketed as being probiotic, but we don't know it, like the microorganisms could be alive, but we don't know in most cases, whether they are present in that beverage in adequate amounts to be able to confer whatever benefit it was. And also just because a beverage contains microorganisms, even in adequate amounts, to affect your physiology, that does not make it a probiotic because then we could say like that salad, potato salad that you get food poisoning from contains live microorganisms in adequate amounts, <laughs> but that's not a benefit. So we really need to be, I think, more judicious in how we use that term because probiotics absolutely do have applications. They There are some that have been documented in multiple studies across multiple labs as conferring some benefit. But it's, you're not going to get that same impact from kombucha or a probiotic soda or something like that. So fermented dairy right now is considered the only probiotic food. So it is a food that does contain live microorganisms, so on and so forth, that meets the definition and confers benefits. Um, most of those are cardiometabolic, so like improving blood lipid levels. Now, when we look at prebiotic supplements and prebiotics that have been added to foods, you don't really need to supplement with prebiotics because you can get them naturally from fruits and vegetables and whole grains and all the things that I mentioned. So it's a little bit of a waste of money in most cases. Also, in the, the vast majority of these products that I have seen contain inulin. So inulin, as I mentioned, is that functional fiber. It is a fiber that's added to other foods to enhance their, their, their nutritional qualities. And inulin is a really, really potent FODMAP. That's a fermentable dietary carbohydrate. 
And while it does indeed have a significant prebiotic effect, I mean, it, it you can supplement with inulin and you will see an increase in bifidobacteria. It usually causes a lot of GI distress in people. And we don't know that, that it's a great idea to just use one type of fermentable carbohydrate to feed your microbes. Because right now we don't know who likes what in every case. We have some idea of like, oh, bifidobacteria, they really seem to like this inulin. But we don't necessarily want more of just one group of microbes just because they're beneficial. We don't like we don't know that that's a good thing, especially when it now is going to change the overall evenness of our microbiome. It's not something that you need to supplement with. You will probably feel better in terms of GI distress if you want to get more fiber in your diet by gradually increasing the whole food sources of fiber in your diet rather than going for one of the sodas or like a specific supplementary type food where you get all of that like at once, just one bolus of six grams of, of inulin fiber is going to be rough for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I've been getting these and they're actually really good, but the marketing is insane. Mm-hmm. There are these like little 25 calorie orange soda tastes just like a Fanta to me. They're really tasty, but they have all these things on the label that's like boosts immunity, probiotic. And I'm looking at the ingredients and I'm like, "Mm -mm." (laughs) it doesn't. It's just flavoring, carbonation and apple cider vinegar. That's it. Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned like not necessarily supplementing with a prebiotic or a probiotic and like, I mean, walk through a pharmacy anywhere and you'll see a million of them on the shelves. Mm -hmm. Is there any use to them? Because this is something we see a lot as coaches, just supplements Mm -hmm. in general was, oh, I just thought I'd try it. Mm -hmm. And we're like, wait, no, hold on. Do you know why? Do you know how much? Do you know what it's supposed to do? Mm -hmm. Prebiotics, probiotics. What about those? So probiotics, I would say... If we look at just like supplements on the whole, right? Like on the the end of, this is a great idea probably for like most people to take. We've got creatine. And then on the other end of like just shit that's been absolutely debunked would be, I don't know, raspberry ketones. (laughs) Oh gosh, I haven't heard of those in a hot minute. (laughs) Right? So probiotics are definitely closer on the, to the end of the spectrum to creatine in terms of the amount of studies that have been done, the replication in some cases, and the confidence which we with which we can say these seem to work for specific applications. But the effect of a probiotic is strain specific. So that means if you see L. rhamnosus GG is really great for pediatric diarrhea. That does not mean that it's going to be helpful for adult diarrhea or for constipation or for anything else. It literally is like, we've studied this maybe in other conditions and it doesn't seem to have an effect, but it does in this specific population. So to, to supplement day by day with just a random blend of probiotics is really not a great use of one's energy and money. But if you are traveling, taking antibiotics or those are kind of the two, those are kind of the two <laughs> main ones. Those are the ones that, that I think have the most evidence. Or you're a child with pediatric diarrhea, then you are in the category of people who would benefit from one of a few specific types of probiotics. And the one that I usually recommend that I bring up and recommend the most often because people are they're traveling or taking antibiotics 
would be S. boulardii, which is actually a, a fungi. It is a yeast. It's not a bacterial probiotic, which might be part of the reason that it is so helpful with antibiotic-associated diarrhea, because unlike bacterial-based probiotics that will be negatively affected by the antibiotics, obviously, the, the yeast seem to be able to negate some of the impact and, and help to relieve or prevent antibiotic-associated diarrhea. And the same can be said with traveler's diarrhea. I believe there are a couple strains of lactobacilli and, again, S. boulardii that can help to prevent traveler's diarrhea. So, but again, that's that they don't, they don't prevent it more than good hygiene. Like that, those are the, that's the, the, one of the number one things like, oh my gosh, wash your hands, bring hand sanitizer with you and don't eat food unless you know that it's been prepared in a hygienic way and whatnot and has been stored properly. Because even sometimes if it's in on the heat, like under the heat lamp or something for a long time, it still is not maintaining a high enough temperature to prevent microbial growth. So probiotics, I mean, definitely, I'm not anti-probiotic at all. I'm just pro-probiotic used for a specific purpose, the, the right probiotics for the right job. And we don't have a solid idea on exactly how much you need to take or the timing, like do you take them with a meal or not, or for how long, but it's generally recommended that it's like probably take it for like as long as you're taking the antibiotics, maybe for a couple of weeks or so that part is still very much kind of a, mm, this seems to work. All right. And then taking at least a billion CFUs. So in terms of the dosing, like you mentioned, I was like, how much and for how long? Like, oh, I don't know that, but <laughs> Too um, take it as, as recommended. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Because the recommended amounts are based on what they've used in trials that have been effective. And so you can be confident about that probably working, not to say that that's the only way we could find out that it's better to do it in a different way in the future. Mm -hmm. It's really, really refreshing to hear actual information because you walk in the grocery store and you see so much mm -hmm. and you even see it online with like influencers giving people misinformation. And what's really unfortunate is a lot of people take that information and they will run with it or they'll use it in a way that they perceive is going to be what's best. And so I think that it's really, really helpful to debunk a little bit of that stuff because, you know, it's people that are on Instagram that are selling things like special blends with pre and probiotics and you have mm -hmm. to take it because your gut's going to be damaged. And it's like, it's just very refreshing to hear also the benefits of fiber because we talk about fiber all the time with our clients. We want to make sure that this is something that you are paying attention to and that you're tracking and making sure that you're getting enough fiber because it does have a direct correlation with your gut health. So it's really interesting. Not, not even interesting. It's validating as a coach. Like it's validating <laughs> yeah. as a coach to be like, yeah, see, I do know what the fuck I'm talking about. It also makes me a little bit sad for all the people that just don't know better that are spending ridiculous amounts of money for either fiber supplements, probiotics, prebiotics. I'm seeing at Costco, those drinks being sold. And it's like $15 for six cans. And I'm like, you guys don't need that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, what frustrates me a lot is that people are really being harmed, like they're being victimized by this industry. And often it's at the expense of their time, their money, and sometimes their health. Because I can tell you more than once I have spoken to a person or worked with a person who 
didn't pursue a, a line of valid clinical testing because they were working in the alternative medicine space and they took all of these non-valid, non-clinical BS tests. And then they go and find out like, oh, there's actually something going on. There's a huge fibroid or there's something wrong with their gallbladder. And I'm not, I don't diagnose based on symptoms, but what I do is I provide information and I say, well, these are according to the Rome criteria, these are red flags. It might be a good idea to go talk to your doctor about that. Have you talked to a gastroenterologist yet? Are you feeling nervous about some of the tests that they might do? Here's what you might be able to expect. And to give maybe that, like the empathetic side that they might not get from conventional medicine, but also the information that they deserve to have so that they're not delaying a diagnosis by doing all these crap tests, like literally and figuratively. Yeah. Yeah. Man, figuratively. Literally and figuratively. Yeah, I mean, because I've, I've worked with clients that have had IBS, they've had Crohn's disease, they've had SIBO, like... There are so many differences and by no means like shitting on alternative medicine because I think that it does have a place, but to go in and get all of these tests and spend not only that, but also spending ridiculous amounts of money for these tests to be yeah. sent home with yeah. just a few supplements, I think is it's not I and I I've seen a naturopath. I, for the most part, trust what they're doing, but like there are some naturopaths out there that don't. It's like, oh, here, take this, take this. And they're giving these alternative solutions that actually aren't working for the patient. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. I mean, I'll go ahead and say, I think it's negligent. I think it's absolutely yeah. negligent yeah. to, yeah. Cause like they are selling and, and it's not like, it's not that we don't know. There are certainly cases in which it's like, oh, I don't know. Certain supplements there's some evidence for them. It doesn't seem that it could be any harm to add this to something that you're doing. But when I see influencers, especially in whatever aspect of the medical community, promoting IgG food sensitivity tests or um, being able to diagnose leaky gut or dysbiosis or saying like conventional medicine doesn't want you to know what's wrong with you. They absolutely want you to know what's wrong with you. you That's know? why there are clinical trials. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, the whole idea like, oh, it's get to the root cause. No, you are actually distracting people from being able to determine what is the root cause using advanced and, and tested and FDA approved techniques. And it just blows my mind because you can go like the American and European academies of, I want to say it's allergies, immunology, and something else have both issued position stands against the use of IgG food sensitivity tests. So this is like a worldwide effort saying, hey, stop, stop recommending that people take these. This is actually a huge problem. And yet you still have people um, promoting them. And the same thing with like an MRT and LEAP test, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics doesn't provide, they, they don't support that type of testing anymore. And they don't allow, they don't approve CEUs for it. So you have organizations that are pointing out these tests are not valid. They are, they don't tell you anything. They're harmful. So when I see a person who is still promoting those, I'm like, you could know better. You might actually know better. And you're still deciding to do this. And I absolutely find that to be super helpful. Yeah. It's abhorrent. You mentioned like 50 things that I want to ask you about, but I, I'm trying to decide which one I want to go with because <laughs> there's so much, I mean, Okay. So food sensitivity tests. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I see them thrown around all the time and I've had clients come on saying that they've been given one or put on one or are considering one. 
because of another professional suggesting it. And yeah. that to me is For yellow sure. to red. And I always ask 100 questions <laughs> about why potentially they're going down this road. But can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Yeah. To me, it's a, it's a dark orange flag. It's yeah. a burnt orange flag. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh gosh, this is, the only, this is the only thing that they've recommended that's nonsense. So a food sensitivity test is sold as a way to diagnose or identify food sensitivities. So first I want to clarify, food sensitivities are either an umbrella term that we could use to refer to intolerances and allergies or it's just a marketing term. And in this case, it's just a marketing term. So a food intolerance is the result of a lacking a digestive enzyme. It could be a digestive enzyme that people sometimes produce, like lactase. In other cases, it's because we would never produce the digestive enzyme for that specific compound. And so when we eat foods that contain compounds that we cannot break down, we'll get GI distress. That's food intolerance. So lactose intolerance is a really common example. A food allergy is an immune response to a food. So that's when your immune system looks at a protein in this food and says, well, that is an intruder. And they mounted an offense and it is an overreaction of the immune system to something that is actually not a pathogen. And and allergies, unlike intolerances, can actually be Mm life-threatening. Yes. A food sensitivity test does not detect either one of those things. A food sensitivity test measures the IgG antibody. So all antibodies are basically used to identify and label foreign substances and actually also self-substances in the body. So you have the IgE antibody. This is part of the immune response. That's part of an allergic response is the IgE antibody. You have an IgA antibody that's really localized in the gut, and that's also part of your immune response. The IgG antibody is a tolerance antibody. It's a recognition antibody. It is going to be high for the foods that you eat often and that your immune system has identified as safe. It's not an intruder. We don't need to attack this. So it doesn't react to that food, just like it wouldn't react to your own body cells. So what happens when you take this test, you send in your blood sample, and then they give you this readout of all these foods and like, oh, zucchini and apples and bread, whatever else. Like, oh, wow, I I have, I eat these things all the time. Oh my gosh, no wonder I feel so bad because these are insensitive to these foods. No, you got that readout because you eat them all the time. You may coincidentally remove or reduce foods that have caused some GI distress because they happen to be high in fermentable carbohydrates. Or maybe you have lactose intolerance and milk came up and so you reduce that. So you may see an improvement in your GI distress, but it's at the expense of your dietary pattern. And I have had one person who came to me that was eating, I think like nine foods and had been that way for months, only nine foods. Can you imagine mm-hmm. trying to do breakfast, oh lunch, my and dinner? Gosh. I mean, yeah. I would go insane. <laughs> Yeah. So like everything else that they ate had came up on their test. So those are incredibly harmful. And and like I said, it's not that we don't know whether they're harmful or not. We know that they are. We know that they are not measuring what they say they're measuring. They are measuring, yes, the IgG antibody. So if you said this test is an IgG antibody test, 
that's it. That's all it's going to do. It's just going to measure the antibodies and we don't interpret that in any other way. Okay. Or you could sell it as these are the foods that your immune system recognizes. There's no issue with these foods. Okay. But the fact that someone decided they were going to sell this as a way to scare people out of eating that I just, I think that person should have a bad day. <laughs> they should stub their toe <laughs> barefoot. <laughs> yeah. I, I say that, or like, I really hope they have wet socks inside tennis shoes. <laughs> yes. I want them to have some wet socks or get head lice. Like one of the two. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, <laughs> I hope that you are inconvenienced regularly for a exactly. long time. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to ask one question because I it actually came up from a client, which I thought was really interesting. If and how autoimmune diseases can be affected or be affected by your gut health. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is a really interesting connection and line of research. And it still is very new, but there is some evidence that your early gut microbiome. So that's shaped by the way that you're born, by whether you were so either vaginal or C-section, breast or bottle fed, uh, how early you were exposed to antibiotics, that those shape your early microbiome. And this is where I think it's really interesting where we see like the dark hero or whatever come in because it's actually some of the pathogenic microbes that help to educate our early immune system. So that's why I want to point out when we're like good gut microbes and bad ones, like, no, the bad ones, quote unquote, still play an important role in helping to inform our immune system of what it should respond to or not. There are also microbes that engage in what we call molecular mimicry. So they have substances on their cell walls or they produce substances that look very similar to what would be uh, on the surface of a, of a human immune, of a human cell. And so our immune systems can get confused and they attack that. And then they see something in a human cell that looks very similar and then will mount an immune response to that as well. And so there does seem to be a, a link between the early microbiome and things like dermatitis or eczema, sometimes allergies later in life. But that is one of the ways in which you might be at greater risk of an autoimmune disease. We haven't identified any sort of cause and effect, but those are the, the um, mechanisms by which it could happen. That basically there's been some miscommunication between your gut microbes and your immune cells, and then your immune cells become confused, don't personify them, and then start to attack your own body cells. I'm so excited to share that because it's like, wow, when you think about it, our bodies are just so incredible. It's amazing to see different ways that different aspects of our health can be affected by stuff like that. It's just fascinating. To me. <laughs> Yeah, it's incredibly, incredibly complex. So it's kind of like, wow, I'm surprised that things usually go right most of the time. Like, <laughs> even all the stuff that can go wrong. Yeah. To follow up on Brooke's question, what can we do in the case of an autoimmune disease to help support a healthy gut or a functional gut or a better functioning gut? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really, when we say autoimmune disease, I mean, that is such a huge category of diseases mm -hmm. and, and conditions. And I want to be very careful too, to, to not come across as like, this is specifically for people with autoimmune disease, because really the things that are linked to both a reduction in, in symptoms for people who have GI diseases, a reduction in disease risk, and a robust, diverse microbiome happen to be all kind of the same things. 
And it really comes back to the basics of, like we mentioned, the prudent, diverse dietary pattern. And not only is that going to provide your gut microbes with a wide variety of different fermentable carbohydrates, but for you, plenty of vitamins, minerals. So when we are eating an energy sufficient and nutrient dense dietary pattern, that's one of the best things that we can do long-term. And that does seem to also influence, um, like I mentioned, the composition of the microbiome and even the ratio of microbes that could be potentially more like engaged in more inflammatory processes. So I'll say maybe they're like, we could nudge a little bit. We might be able to influence that potential for a more inflammatory potential microbiome, pretty very cautious here, versus one that is not. So prudent dietary pattern. The other thing is physical activity. So there is a really compelling body of research now that's that's grown a lot in the past several years, looking at the relationship between um, physical activity, including exercise, that's anything from recreational exercise to professional athletes, and the gut microbiome. And there does seem to be a, a triad of influence here that if you are physically active, you're more likely to have a more diverse microbiome. And there are certain microbes that may help with energy harvesting. So they're extracting more energy from your diet that you can then use. And with certain, the fatty acids that I mentioned that might be supportive of exercise performance. So that's kind of like a bi-directional benefit there. But the third part is dietary pattern. Because if you are not eating a proven dietary pattern with enough fiber, there's evidence that your probiotics are not really going to matter and you won't be able to fully realize the benefits of exercise. So it's like a three-way thing there. Like, And obviously nutrition is important for exercise performance and for your microbiome. And then the other, those, so those are my top dietary pattern, physical activity. Second to that would be the, actually maybe foundational to that though, because it makes it easier depending on how you look at it, but sleep and stress management. There is a link between psychological stress and GI distress in healthy people and in people with irritable bowel syndrome. It's usually more like functional disorders, not as much with, with IBD, but certainly with people with IBS. And that obviously can make it harder or easier for you to adhere to physical activity in a dietary pattern. The same thing can be said for sleep disturbance. So ensuring that you get adequate sleep, that is the opportunity really for your body to repair. And then third to all of that, that's where we could look at, are there specific supplements that we would take at certain periods of time that might be suggested or indicated for specific populations? Um, or are there maybe like specific foods that we want to make sure that we add? Maybe a person wants to be almost vegetarian, but fermented dairy is really supportive of health. And so they decide to add some fermented dairy on top of like an, an otherwise uh, animal-free dietary pattern. So those are kind of like the ref little refinements, the little tweaks, or taking probiotics at certain periods of time to maybe help defend against getting a communicable disease. If you're already managing another disease, you really don't want to then be infected by a disease that could be preventable. So that's my way of looking at things. Like we have to get the foundation of sleep and stress management, dietary pattern, physical activity, and then you sprinkle in those little bit of extras if you've got the rest figured out and solid. And, and you know, whether it's a person who's, who's managing a disease or not, that is the way that I try to approach things. Even though for me, I, sleep is sleep is a tough one, but I do what yeah. I can. 
if you haven't noticed already, I'm very cautious about the things that I say and implement. Mm -hmm. But even I will take Esculardi when I travel because I'm like, I'm traveling internationally. I practice hygiene as much as I can, but just to be on the safe side, because I know everything else is solid, then I know that there's no contraindications. I go ahead and I take that like a week before I'm going to travel, while I'm traveling, and then a week after. It all just it just keeps coming back to the basic boring shit and avoiding extremes. I know. <laughs> it's like the most unsexy stuff to ever talk about ever. But like, what do you people want? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. I'm like, I wish that I could make it like more exciting. Maybe I have to do like a, I don't know, like a microbiome challenge. Like I challenge you to sleep for seven hours <laughs> a night. I challenge you to take a nap sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm down. <laughs> Jumping back to that list of like 50 things I wanted to jump all over. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned leaky gut. What is leaky gut? Does it exist? Oh, yeah. I love this. Topic. And I will preface this by saying this was part of my doctoral research was we didn't ah. leaky gut. We called it altered intestinal permeability. And so this is something that is like a near and dear to my heart topic. So if someone was going to be like, oh, yeah, definitely you've got leaky gut, it would be me. But... <laughs> I have to clarify like what first the definition. So when we say leaky gut, we actually are referring to what we say like altered or increased intestinal permeability. So your intestinal tract is lined by a single, single layer with some extra cells tucked in, but a layer of intestinal cells. And they are attached to one another side by side by um, tight junction proteins. In the small intestine, those cells are covered with a really thin, incomplete layer of mucus. In the large intestine, those cells are covered with two layers of mucus. And they form part of your immune system, that mucus and these intestinal cells. Because the intestinal cells are ideally very, very tightly packed together, tightly connected, and they're only uh, selectively permeable. So substances can, eat, can get into your bloodstream and lymph system by passing through the intestinal cell, being, being processed or by passing in between your intestinal cells. Now, what can happen in certain cases, so for example, in people who have inflammatory bowel disease, it's been linked to people who have IBSD, it's been linked to a high fat dietary pattern, to a very high BMI. In certain cases, there is evidence that those tight junction proteins either malfunction or something, and there is more space between those intestinal cells. And so now we can have leakage or, or transport of substances that have not been processed by the intestinal cell and are no longer being selectively defended against. So we get things entering blood and lymph that are not really supposed to be there. And one of them, what I studied was the link between a high fat diet and LPS or lipopolysaccharide. So that is a toxin that comes from the lining of, or the cell wall of certain bacteria. When these bacteria die and break apart, that endotoxin or LPS can enter the bloodstream by way of those leaky channels between the, the intestinal cells, and it can bind to various receptors on different cells. And that's part of what is implicated in the metabolic disease process. So like developing fatty liver or insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes. So there is actually science behind that phenomenon. There is actually, and it is a measurable thing. You can actually measure the level of those tight junction proteins. You can measure the amount of substance that's slipping in between the intestinal cells. 
So it's not complete bunk like the IgG food sensitivity test is. And there is evidence that chronic use of NSAIDs can cause minor ulcerations and inflammation in the line of the intestinal tract. So there's a chance that if you do have ulcerations, then certainly you can have substances that are passing through. And we can do this not just in a lab setting. You can actually have a person drink a solution and then measure which of the molecules end up just in their urine versus in the bloodstream. And if you get uh, larger ones than you should expect, then you can say, okay, they have an altered increased intestinal permeability. Um, And we do see that temporarily with people who do like an, an intense endurance event. We can measure that they have a little bit more intestinal permeability. But the issue is that We are saying that leaky gut is like this ubiquitous disorder that so many people have. And that is something that you, that's like a disease that's diagnosable and treatable. And it is not any of those things. It's just a physiological phenomenon and it is measurable. But to say that it is like a root cause of anything would be inaccurate because it's not. It's just that it has been, it's it's correlated with certain conditions. So it might be that you are more likely to have altered intestinal permeability if you have inflammatory bowel disease, but also you have ulcerations in some cases in those diseases. So then you will almost certainly have more intestinal permeability, but it is not something that we have a direct treatment for. You could certainly treat the condition that might be that it might be linked to and then see an improvement in that. But it doesn't have a specific microbiome profile. So you can't say like you have dysbiosis and that's why I have leaky gut. Uh, it doesn't have any outward symptoms. So if you have like GI distress, that's not telling you you have leaky gut. And now I actually had a dietitian reach out to me and say, hey, what do you know about these fecal zonulin tests and calprotectin tests? Because I've got dietitians and people are starting to promote using those. Now, if you, you can get fecal calprotectin measured in a valid clinical test, and that can indicate whether you might have inflammatory bowel disease if the levels are extremely high. So that is not a completely bunk test. It just depends on whether you're using a test that has been FDA approved. So for example, you might, I don't know if there are direct to consumer tests that are just like in the alt med space and they have some arbitrary reference ranges and they're like, oh, you got leaky gut because of this fecal calprotectin measurement. And then zonulin is, is not a direct measure of intestinal permeability either. So I would say if you are sure that the reference ranges that are being used in these tests have been validated, have been clinically validated, or at least been validated for research purposes, that's at least giving you something that you can be clear on on what it's telling you. Like, oh, okay, I have elevated fecal calprotectin levels, or I have elevated zonulin levels. But to then say, oh, now I'm going to diagnose you with leaky gut and then treat it, that's taking it one step into the science fiction realm. Yeah. So really quick, because I know we're coming up on our time, but just a term that we've said a couple times, dysbiosis. What is that? Yeah, dysbiosis and eubiosis are terms that have actually been around for a long time, even in in like the gut microbiome space. But dysbiosis has about 12 different definitions, depending on who you're talking to. Really, it is at its core, it just means it is a difference in this microbiome profile compared to the controls. But the issue is that we assume that if there's a difference from a healthy control, there must be something wrong with this one. That's where the dis kind of comes in. It sounds bad. And there's a new course out, I want to say, on gut health. It's not mine. It's a different one. 
And one of the speakers said, gut dysbiosis has been linked to every disease of the modern world. And I thought, isn't it sort of odd that that would just be every disease? Mm-hmm. Like what, what's the probability? And, and, and if it is every disease, literally every disease, how nonspecific is it? <laughs> like, what does it actually mean? And what's actually being communicated there unintentionally is that we assume that every person who has a disease must also have dysbiosis. And if their if their, their uh, microbiome is going to look different than this other person's who we know is healthy, we assume that the person with the disease also has a diseased microbiome. And that is not necessarily the case. It could be that's the best microbiome that they could possibly have in that situation. And there's nothing wrong with it. There is no dysbiosis because dysbiosis is not something that we come up with a, an actual consensus definition for. So, so when I hear things like that, I'm like, ah, it's so frustrating because there are researchers that are saying that and using this term without a definition to just mean anything. It could be you have fewer beneficial uh, microbes than we saw in the control group, more pathogenic microbes than we saw in the control group, just less overall microbes or more overall microbes. It doesn't literally really mean anything. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's a a paper out, I think it's by Olison. It's one of my favorites because he says, dysbiosis is a mechanism-free explanation of disease. Especially, Essentially, it's It's just, oh, it's got to be dysbiosis. And everyone's like, oh, yes, that must be it. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the opposite of that is eubiosis, which is like, oh, we assume that healthy people have eubiosis. You've got the right blend of microbes. But, you know, we're, there are 8 billion people on the planet are we going to pick the one person who's the healthiest and has the best microbiome and be like, that's the one. If you're not, if you're not on that level, right. Do better. Yeah. I remember sometime last year, I think it was diet soda or something. There was a big freak out because the news was saying that diet soda causes dysbiosis and everybody was losing their minds. It's like, yes, but (laughs) first of all, that doesn't really mean anything. And second of all, in terms of health and fat loss, the diet sodas are actually incredibly helpful in in a lot of cases overall because of the health outcomes of consuming less calories from certain things. Like it's it's crazy. Yeah, exactly. Well, I could keep going for like two more (laughs) hours, but I know we all have, we have to go unfortunately, but thank you so much. This has been amazing. It was a pleasure. I'm glad we got to end on that dysbiosis question. That's one of my favorite questions. One of my favorite topics. I love taking things that people generally freak out about. I mean, don't get me started on insulin excursions. I'll go all day on that. But just normal things that people just absolutely lose their minds about. Anyway, (laughs) before we go, though, plug your stuff again. Tell us where we can find you. Yes, absolutely. So my vitamin PhD handle is now going to be dedicated to lifestyle coaching and my own musings on my philosophy on living authentically. If people want gut health content, go to no underscore BS underscore gut health. That's on Instagram and TikTok. And I have some exciting announcements coming up this week. I do have a course that I'm going to be launching this spring. So stay posted on that. And I am moving my website, but right now you can still find it at vitaminphdnutrition.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. And uh, let's keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you. 
And to everybody else, thanks for joining us. I hope you have a wonderful day and we'll talk to you next time. Same time, same place. Peace. Thanks for listening to Tater Talks, two bitches talk fitness. If you enjoyed the show, let us know by writing a review, subscribing wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find me, Iris, on Instagram at Iris Deadlifts. And you can find me, Brooke, on Instagram at Get You a Brooke. We'll talk to you soon. Dude, that was so good. That really was. <laughs> <laughs>